Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode is sponsored by Riverside. Now, I started using Riverside about five months ago, and it's been a real game changer for the podcast. I record remotely from my home studio, and it really allows me to get brilliant audio quality as it records remotely with all of my guests. So even if their Wi-Fi isn't perfect, the audio quality always remains the same. It records high-quality videos, and a new feature it has is AI transcription, so it auto-generates transcripts perfect for editing in over 100 different languages. And our Sliding Doors listeners are in for a treat. If you visit Riverside FM and use the code SLIDINGDOORS, you'll get an exclusive 15% discount off any Riverside individual plan. You can start for free by clicking the link on the show notes and use the code SLIDINGDOORS whenever you are ready. Have fun! Now on with this week's episode. My guest today is Dan Schreiber. Dan is a podcaster, comedian, author, producer and professional fact hunter. He is best known for his podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, and We Can Be Weirdos, as well as being a QIL from the popular TV show. His early life started in Hong Kong before moving to Sydney, Australia, and then finally settling down in the UK at age 19. He began his career at the television show QI as a researcher, and then went on to be the host of the QI-derived comedy podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, which is a regular fixture on the top 10 podcast charts with over 430 million downloads. Dan is also the author of The Theory of Everything Else, a collection of mind-boggling and goosebump-raising theories, and has a weekly podcast, We Can Be Weirdos, where Dan meets a fascinating lineup of anything but normal guests. He also co-created and produced BBC Radio 4's highly successful and long-running series, The Museum of Curiosity. And his extensive repertoire of behind-the-scenes credits also includes Frank Skinner's comedy panel show, The Rest is History, and heading up Warner Music Entertainment's Comedy Arm. Dan lives with his wife and three children, and with someone who has such an interesting career in life so far, and the king of facts, I cannot wait to find out about his thoughts and beliefs, as well as the Sliding Doors moments that have shaped his life so far. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Dan. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for having me. 
So did I get all my facts right in yeah, the intro? Yeah, that was 100% right. And yes. it was quite a journey to listen to it as well. You're still going, wow, yeah, okay. Yeah. That sounds okay, like good, a I'm glad I got it right. fun life. Yeah. And it's also quite intimidating to interview one of the biggest podcasters, 430 million downloads. It's, it's quite overwhelming for me to say. Does it feel overwhelming to hear? Well, it's, uh, you know, we've been going nine years and it's really hard to work out what that number means because you don't you don't get to see the audience really. We go yeah. on tour and we get to see audience members coming to the show, but that number is so big that you kind of wonder how much of that is real, how much is it <laughs> fake? You know, you, you ever see those end of year Spotify things where everyone says, this is how many hours I listen to you. Yeah. So you sort of like, you know, a couple of people would post one saying, I spent 470 hours <laughs> listening to you this year. And you're like, oh, okay, so it's just you. You're the one who's- You're the one we, who's everything. We've got six fans, it turns out and uh, <laughs> you're all but listening you're right, to it though, it's overwhelming but also you're right you don't see them and actually a podcast is very personal it's very intimate but it's amazing to know that you've reached so many people and your new podcast is doing so so well um wanted to find out are you enjoying it and what made you start we can be weirdos yeah i'm i'm properly having the time of my life right now with this new podcast because i i love everything that i've done leading up to this it's always collaboration is my favorite thing and having a gang mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I found two brothers and a sister with no such thing as a fish. And that's yeah. always going to be sort of the big love of my life. But what I've always wanted to do is to be able to sit with someone who I personally find incredibly interesting and try to explain as best as I can, I think even better possibly than they can, why they are so cool. And yeah. that, there's nothing I love more than doing that. And so... I you do, I don't everything else I've done I've never got the chance to do that I've always either been behind the scenes or if we have a guest on on no such thing as a fish we're always just talking facts and so this was finally me just going I meet all these incredible people through the nature mm -hmm. of what I do for a living and now I can I can tell you about them so getting to sit down with the Guinness World Record holder for the longest hunt for the Loch Ness monster that is incredible. Yes, then sitting incredible. down with Dan Aykroyd or a neurosurgeon or fellow podcasters um, like Red Handed. It's yeah, it's been it's been awesome. I love that. And I love that you say that you've kind of gone from, you know, the collaboration, but actually this is something you're really passionate about. And that's why these things do so well, because your passion comes across to the audience. And if you're curious to know about these people, you know that other people will be as well. That's slightly it. I mean, I think you do. And that's what podcasting is about. This is what you do as well with you curate mm -hmm. the guests that you get. And that becomes why people want to listen to your show because they go, there's a whole thing of like, you can go to shows where it's back-to-back -back celebrities, or you can go to a show where you go, I've never heard of this person, but I'm going to trust that Jenny has picked someone that I should know about. You kind of have to buy into me in order to make it through the series, because it's a trust that I'm going to yeah. make sure you're sitting with someone fun. For sure. It's education, but it's also inspiration, like you said there. And I labelled you in the introduction as a professional fact hunter. Now, this isn't a usual career path. So let's take it back. What were you like as a kid growing up and what were kind of your aspirations and dreams? Well, it's it's really weird. This is going to sound really bizarre, but it's not often that you sit and hear your story read out at the top of a show. It's yeah. only happened a few times, but you did a pretty thorough job there because you sort of included my wife and kids and so on. And... Um, this is a weird thing to say, but as I was listening to that, I was sort of thinking when I was a kid, when I was sort of like 10 or 11, this is exactly the paragraph that I envisaged would be read out when I was this age. Oh, I love Doing that. all these kind of things, doing stand-up, you know, working in the weirdo territories, finding interesting facts for a living. I knew I was probably going to be a dad of three because I'm a, I'm a child of three. Um, that usually happens, doesn't it? If you're like, whatever you are, you want to have. Yeah. And my wife as well is, a, you know, we're the eldest of three. So we we kind of both number three was always our number, really. Um, so I, what's weird is as a kid, I was kind of what I am now. I just sort of I needed the time to get to where I wanted to be. Yeah. It sounds odd, but I, I, I'm kind of being truthful about that. I, I really knew what I was going to do when I was a kid and I just kind of insisted on doing it. 
I really love that. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think a lot of the time, you know, people will be like, I wanted to be a lawyer or I wanted to be a scientist or an astronaut. But actually, the fact that you loved hearing what your life has been so far is amazing. And would you class yourself as a weirdo? I think I must be. But I think the probably what I've noticed from asking people about their weirdnesses is you don't really notice that you're a weirdo. You kind of because your reality is what helps you make sense of the universe. It's it's mm-hmm. what grounds you and makes sure that none of us just suddenly flip out and and do crazy things. And that that does happen to people in life. And, and actually, you know, that's what a midlife crisis is or whatever. Like yeah. it, we will get moments where we fly off the handle rails. But um, I don't think in a classic sense I'm a weirdo. I think I'm probably weird in how calm I am about the sort of a, a bit zen about everything. Yeah. I, that might be my my thing. Actually, I say that now that I'm a dad, the zen is out the window. I'm a screaming <laughs> mess. Yeah. I'm a furious, rageful. That. Oh, you try not to be. I try and do like, you know, I've been reading a lot of zen since I wrote my book last year because it's such an appealing idea, sort of connecting yourself with the planet. Um and I'll do sort of half an hour of waking up in the morning and go, God, I feel really zen today. I feel like this is going to be an amazing day. Oh, and, then, and then they walk in and it all changes. Oh, and someone's pissed on the sofa. <laughs> someone's hitting the baby. You're like, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah, so. God. At least you're trying. At least you're trying. But I actually think everybody's weird in some way. I don't actually believe in the word normal. I think we yeah. all have a weirdness about us. And it's just, as you say, how we define ourselves, but then how others look at us as well. Yeah, I think it's my, my big thing which is an idea that I came up when I was writing my book is that everyone is a little bit batshit and you look and I I came to this because all the research I've done over the years you find that everyone who's changed the world was a bit weird like they just had one thing yeah exactly and I wondered if whether or not that weirdness is what gave them their edge which is what helped them look at what everyone else was looking at with different eyes with different goggles so that they could solve the thing the missing puzzle to a piece um and and I found so many, I mean, literally everyone, Edison, Lincoln, you know, like name any historical name. I guarantee you I can find you a little bit of weirdness. Actually, the only people I couldn't find anything weird about was the band Wet, Wet, Wet. That's the only <laughs> That's the only place where there is zero batshit going on. But, um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, nothing. They got nothing. I'm, I would nothing. love for someone to find out something for me. Anyone listening, if you know anything about Wet, 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 please get we're in gonna, contact. We're going to have to do that. But, yeah. but you're right. Like, I think if you look at even like big companies like you know the people that have are entrepreneurs are often you know the weird crazy big ideas and then they need their team around them to kind of collaborate bring it together and kind of bring all those ideas to fruition and make sure they're financially good and yeah I think it's such a brilliant topic and are you the person then at like dinner parties and when you're with your friends that everyone wants to have you there because they think oh you know like Dan will bring all of the the facts the banter the the conversation does it ever feel pressure for you no not really I think in my in most people know that I'm quite an idiot with my information and a lot of it is kind of silly kind of information so there's if you were like going for a dinner party there are better qi people to get i'm the sort of i'm low on the list unless you want someone who's just going to tell crazy stories all evening then Which some uh, people might want. well i think personally that's the better version yeah. so yeah but um no i weirdly no i it ha- it's happening a bit more now that the shows are getting a bit bigger and people are recognizing me more if i'm at a pub they're like come on give us facts like i that's not usually i get asked for facts but that's happening more so now I would say yeah no I can imagine and because you kind of said that you always envisaged yourself being the person that you kind of are and doing what you're doing do you have goals and aspirations that you're now living towards and working towards yeah sort of but they're a bit blurry I guess it's kind of my teacher at school once told me this thing where uh, when I was doing a project he said you're you're jumping all over the shop with your project which is kind of was analogous to how i am in life anyway and he said here's the thing you're picture you're on a boat and there's a dense fog and before the fog came over you saw an island in the distance that's where you need to get to so the fog is there you're mm-hmm. you're going to sway off and you're going to go into be pushed into different directions but make sure you always get back on that line no matter what to get to the island and That's kind of how I feel about it as well. I know that the end goal is 
the word comedy. Like, I just always want to make things that are funny, no matter what. That's I, And I always want to be around people who are funny. So that's Comedy Island, where all the comedy people live. They're all the stand-ups, yeah. they're all the writers, they're all the producers. And I'm on a boat trying to get to that island. And I'm swerving off and I'm making little projects or making odd decisions on the way. But no matter what, they're all comedy decisions to get me to that island. That's kind of how I see it. So that's kind of what I meant when you were saying the CV at the top. I... I didn't know specifically I was going to be a podcaster. That didn't exist when I was a kid. And I didn't know specifically mm-hmm. I was going to work for QI. That didn't exist. But what I mean was tonally I knew that this is – I was going to do multiple different things because I was not good enough at one thing to make that my one career. But also why mm. – if you have the opportunity, like in a world of comedy, to to do multiple disciplines, why not do that? Why not have fun? Just follow your nose and see where the next adventure takes you. It's literally a life of sliding doors in that respect because yeah. you're not hunking down on one job and progressing upward and upward. There's nothing wrong with that. But I went more slidey doors in my actual life of going, I've been given an opportunity here. It's so far away from a job of a stand-up comedian when I was thinking I want to do that. But I thought, oh, but that's going to help me get into stand-up comedy via this weird route. And actually I can, you know, I I at one point worked for the BBC for their in-house development for um, comedy entertainment quiz creation, basically. That was the department. And there was also an opportunity to maybe try and get into the comedy department. And I just thought, well, I'm not yet funny enough and I haven't trained enough to know how to be a writer in comedy so I'll just lose that but I bet none of the comedians are applying to the quiz format place so let me go there and let me be the comedy guy in that team which is what happened and I was able to develop panel shows while I was in that team and get away comedy shows while the other people were in the other team not getting anything away because there was just too much competition and too much going on. So it was kind of, you know, these weird decisions that kind of propel you forward still towards that island is yeah. is the kind of idea. I love that explanation so much because we often talk about, you know, we know the destination we want to get to, but the journey we get there is so different and we don't know which way it's going to take us. But I think having that vision of an island, I'm going to do that myself and know that's kind of where I want to get to, but as you say, the opportunities that come along the way. And that leads on to a question I want to ask you. And I'm interested to know your thoughts because you are very into facts and the sliding doors theory isn't that factual. It's kind of, you know, there's there's so many different facets to it. What do you believe in when it comes to the sliding doors theory? So everything happens for a reason, timing, fate, coincidence, luck. What what do you believe? Well, I, I don't know. I think... I don't think there's no science at all for the sliding door theory because there's sliding door for me represents not fate and not destiny. It represents parallel universe. There's a theory which is, uh, I don't know the full theory properly, but there's a guy called David Deutsch who I think talked about this, which is the idea, he's a physicist who lives in Oxford, Mm -hmm. he's a real biggie in that world, and he mentioned the idea that every single thing, every decision on our planet creates a new parallel universe. If an ant walks left instead of right, the universe is created where one ant went right and one ant went left. So billions upon billions of parallel universes are being created every single millisecond, just all these different versions. Mm -hmm. And, And when I think about sliding doors, I think, well, okay, there was a version of me who got here 10 minutes earlier today. I was running 10 minutes late for this podcast and we started 10 minutes earlier and right now we're having a very different conversation. There's yeah. a and I know that people have feelings like what if I didn't watch the football match? Did I make our football team lose by oh, yeah. watching the football <laughs> match? What if I just hadn't watched it? What if I'd watched it in a different location? Would my influence have somehow turned the fates of of the team? We you know there's so many different permutations on the sliding doors idea. For me, that's the one that sticks most is when I made a decision to leave Australia to come overseas, had I not have decided that, my whole life would be different. And there must be millions of Dans who are living in other realities right now that uh, didn't do that. I mean, so I don't know if parallel universes exist, but if they do, which a lot of scientists suggest that they do, um, there are lots of me's that the sliding door is a reality. 
For sure. And the film very much kind of goes into the whole parallel universe. And we've just, the film's 25 years old this year, and we've been looking into on the podcast, that theory of parallel lives. And it's absolutely mind boggling. And I love what you say, because it isn't just about our life. It's also how your life has affected other people. You know, you moving from Australia didn't just affect what you did, but it affected so many other people. And if you really start thinking about it, you just can drive yourself crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the that's a big obsession of mine at the moment that I'm looking into, which is that, well, it's not sliding doors. It's the butterfly effect. But sliding yeah. doors is connected to that. It very um, much is. And... So it's kind of, there's a story which um, is fairly famous, but I didn't know it, which is that um, there's a child that's playing out outside of its house and it goes underneath the car and it gets stuck underneath the car. A mum runs out and lifts the car up so that the baby can escape, exerting just this insane, like weird human power that we don't usually have. And that's a story of sort of talking about how, wow, what is the human body capable of and yeah. all that sort of stuff. It's often used as an example of that sort of, you know, the mum who lifted the car. And so who is this mum? We'll never know, right? She's just this mum who's now in the literature of, of anecdotes about how the human body can do this sort of stuff. But that was a real mum. And somewhere out there, she changed in a very small way, the course of history in that respect, but then also hugely influential in another respect because one person who was sitting there on the day at a local cafe looking out as this mum lifts this car up and the baby comes out is a comic book writer who thinks, wow, what an amazing thing. What if I had a character that could do that? What if with superhuman strength? And then created The Incredible Hulk. And so the Incredible Hulk only exists because this mum who did this and this mum will never know that. She changed the world and all she was trying to do was save her baby's life. And she'll never know. She'll never know. And I think you're right that we do that all the time. What's the footprint that you're leaving in people's lives that you don't Mm. realize and that you'll never know about? I often sit back and just think about that as not for me, but like I I think of my sons. I'm like, what are you guys going to do? What are you going to do that's going to change the world? And sometimes... You can lead a life that you think is not spectacular and you can die and you'll never know that maybe like we've had in, um, if you go to the museums around the world, any body, the cheddar man that was found, the oldest full um, skeleton of the oldest Britain that we've ever found, found in Cheddar Cheddar Gorge, you know, that guy just died yeah. <laughs> just had a normal life. Didn't know that he's now in a museum behind glass being viewed oh, by... That, that blows human, my mind. Just we don't know what we're going to what we're gonna impact on on the world. And, and that's such a fun, fascinating thought. I almost thought like when you did the intro to the show, what you should have done was, as you were telling my CV, created a sliding doors moment and just presented my alternative I life. know. <laughs> we should. That's actually a very good idea. Yeah. But- Dan, I could talk to you about the sliding doors theory. Maybe we'll have to do a whole episode on sliding doors and the theory and all of that parallel universes. But let's get on to your sliding doors moments in your life because they're really great. And the first one is the day I picked the silly hippie school um, or the more normal one, would I have shaped my life differently? Um, So this sounds really interesting. It's kind of a sliding doors decision, which is often the same as a moment, but you kind of decided to do this yourself. Yeah. So explain the decision to go to this school and why it was such a sliding doors moment for you. Well, I had just left Hong Kong as a 12-year-old and I'd arrived in Sydney with my family and life was completely different for us. It was gone from this very multicultural city life where it was high rises everywhere and uh, it was a very bizarre existence, Hong Kong, all the way to this very much more laid back Sydney beachside existence where the it was boiling hot and the schools had um, nothing but, and certainly like the areas I lived in, basically white kids and just it couldn't be more different from the upbringing that I had. And so... Yeah. My mum had gone ahead and done a lot of research on different schools, and there were two different school options that were on the table. One was called Skeggs, which was sort of very similar to the a sort of British school, a British kind of Eton kind of school, in that it yeah. had, it, it probably is very different, but it had a uniform, it had boater it hats, it was proper, and it looked very sophisticated, and it looked like that's where you'd get a really good education as well. Um, then this other option that came up was a school called Rudolf Steiner, which was 
based in the bush. It had alternative ideas at its core. And it had a dumb name, Rudolph. I just thought, who goes to a school <laughs> called Rudolph? And it didn't have a uniform. And it, uh, from the from the basics that we could learn about it, it was sort of steeped in hippiness, even though only last year I would learn that that sort of is not true. It's actually at its core, in its origins, of quite a sinister uh, thing that that's at its origins. But at my school, it was very hippie. There was no yeah. sinisterism whatsoever. So... My mum presented me with this moment and it was a moment that like in my head, it was like when John Lennon was presented with living with his mum or his dad, uh, that that was like a, a big yeah. moment in his life. And I was just faced with this like, wow, because everything that's going to happen now is going to define the rest of my life. You know, the friends I'm going to make at these places are the friends oh, I'm going to so carry much. through. The what do, I, what do I want? Do I want the education that's going to get me somewhere that's going to be like a lawyer? Or do I want to take a risk on this hippie school? And I'm only 12 years old, but it was... I was, was going to say, did you think all of that when you were that age? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Because I just left this academic school. Also, Hong Kong was a weird place. It kind of gave you mm. an odd confidence about life that I think no, a lot of great. places don't necessarily do. Not necessarily confidence for like um being an egotistical dick just being a confidence of going i trust your gut trust your gut a bit yes. that that's kind of what i felt like it was and so rudolf steiner the name made me laugh i thought it'd be very funny to go tell my friends in hong kong i was going to somewhere called rudolf so the comedy was the the key there again it just made me go that's funny and so i picked that and as a result i really think that school shaped or at least help to sh to help me continue the shaping that I was already trying to do uh, into what I've done for the rest of my life. And it was a weird school. We, yeah. you know, I, I got to do lectures about my belief that there was ancient crystals hidden underneath a passageway in the Great Pyramids <laughs> of Giza and how it was Atlantean technology. You know, I, I, you know, I got high marks for that kind of thing. I got high Amazing. marks when I was writing about Sylvia Plath poems, the poem Ariel, and accidentally mistaking it on purpose for The Little Mermaid and sort of analyzing it as if it was The Little Mermaid. While all my friends were getting good or bad marks for actually taking the job seriously, Steiner still gave me good marks for something that was completely incorrect for the brief because they are a creative school and they thought, yeah. well, that was interesting. So we're not going to mark you down for it. Um, well done, you know. That's and so great. And then, yeah, and so it kind of, uh, I ended up leaving Steiner without any like any marks there was I, I didn't have any qualifications and that was my choice and and it was a choice that my parents backed and it was a choice that the school backed and that's a that's a weird thing to do that's a weird decision to make I'm yeah, gonna leave with no qualifications after my high school period um, but it's also amazing and again it shows you don't have to go down these kind of like paths that everyone says you have to but also the point that you made about school really really shapes who you are and I don't think often I mean I think our parents do when they're making decisions but we don't know how much it's going to change our lives and the power that the people we're around at such a young age are going to influence who we are and do you remember at that age, as you said, like being able to follow your gut to make a decision like that? And did your parents give you the freedom to kind of make that decision for yourself? Yeah, definitely. I think my parents were the people that created that world in which I I had the confidence and the and the trust in myself to make those decisions. So there was nothing I ever did that they questioned. I used to I used to skip school because I wanted to read spike milligan books at home i'd be like mom I'm, I'm in a really i'm in the middle of a really good spike milligan book and she would go well okay i mean if you're gonna read at least yeah that's fine you can stay at home and so i you know i i had parents that were really uh liberal in that respect and mm -hmm. they they themselves neither of them went to high school they were both two hairdressers who met in Hong Kong and opened up a salon in Hong Kong. So oh, grew up in salons, just listening to people's stories. And uh, yeah, it just never occurred to me that it would be hard to do what I wanted to do. I think that's obviously like a white boy privilege thing. So mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend there's anything mystical about it. Um, I, I, I got that kind of confidence by nature of i'm a male i'm white like all that stuff does play yeah. in 
yeah, years ago I wouldn't have said that, but you know, it's obvious when you look at the surrounding world. There's too much evidence. Sure. It's scientific at this point. There's like, yeah, it, it really it, is, and it and it gives you a and you know, my sister would be told she couldn't go out and stuff like that because they're petrified of crazy white men, you know, basically yeah. in Sydney. Uh, and I never had those limitations, so I was always just a freedom kind of person. And my sister's a great case study in that respect to sort of have her going. Well, I didn't get to fucking do that, you know. Oh. Oh, no, like, sibling rivalry. Yeah. Well, just, I mean, purely just on, like, safety levels. And I can For see sure. it. I can see it with my kids. I'm like, well, you three aren't going anywhere. You're you're staying at home. Like, no way. <laughs> Never, ever going out. But you're totally right. And I think that what I love about this moment is, is that you really know that it did shape who you are. Oh, yeah. And are there people that you're kind of still in touch with now that you met in that school or that people that you really know kind of influenced you and what, what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my... When I first moved to London, my my best friends from Rudolf Steiner moved in with me in oh. into flats here. We're still best friends. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm still in contact with most of the people in my year, one way or another. I mean, the the Facebook and Instagrams counts. You know, that's that's really put us in a different territory of staying in contact because. As you know, it's kind of like you don't even need to chat to them. You can just follow their lives. And so when you yeah. see each other, you're like, hey, it's so nice to meet your daughter. I've seen photos of her. Yeah, You've been posting. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> like literally been following her your whole life. And yeah. how cool. And, you know, hey, this is your wife. I, yeah, we, yeah, I know everything about you guys because you <laughs> post about it and it comes up on my timeline. So, sure. you know, that's really, that's really great. But I, I am super close with a bunch of um, people from there. And, and I have such fond feelings for everyone who were my teachers and and others around there at the time. And when you meet a Steiner kid internationally, that's a bit of a kind of a thing. A thing. Same with Hong Kong as well. If I meet someone from Hong Kong, um, you know, it feels like a club, which is quite cool. Oh, that's great. It's a, it's such a brilliant moment because I love the fact that you remember it being a decision. You remember that there were two options because you can now really answer the question I'm going to ask you, which is what if? So what if you'd have chosen the other school? How different do you think your life would be now? I think it would be, yeah, I mean, any any permutation in what we've done in our lives is going to lead to a completely different life. Yeah. It might not. I still would have tried to get into comedy, definitely. I still would probably be in England. But I don't think I would have... Well, I wouldn't... I mean, on the on the core level, I wouldn't know Dan Neeson and Xander Vilne and, you know, Sashi and Penny. And yeah. I wouldn't know... What a crazy thought that I just would never have had all those experiences, my first kiss, uh, you know, my first, my, yeah, my first um, uh, discos, my first, you know, like everything is rooted with that core group of people. And so even that alone is mm -hmm. just the game changer about where life would have changed. You know, Dan Neeson and Xander, they were in a band and they let me play in their band and I got into music as a result of them. And then, you know, like that led me into the creative sides. Would I have done that at Skeggs? Would I have gone, you know, there was always a bit of me that always loved debating. And and even though I suck at it, I I would want to do it. So would I have headed into a more lawyery kind of territory? Yeah. Would I, you know, I'd... I think I would have been fine because I did go to an academic school in Hong Kong at the same time. But again, as I say, Hong Kong, weird ass place. So the school itself, since talking to friends, I met up with I met up with a bunch of Hong Kong friends the other day who I haven't seen in 20 years. And and I don't know, the nature of that school meant that we literally sat down and went, as I was saying. So, yeah. you know, it was just we were back in. There was no yeah. hesitation. There was no weirdnesses at all. Um but what is it? I mean, that's the most enjoyable thing about this podcast and the thought of it is, yeah, where where does life change when you go this other way? For sure. Where and do I you think, end up? Yeah. And you're right, because it can just be so small as like, did an ant go right or left? But this one is like something that, you know, you really remember. And I think, as you say, you may have been finding your way, but you would have been a totally different person. And it's amazing just to be able to look back at that sometimes and really remember that's kind of where, you know, you can maybe plant the seed of where everything started to flourish for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It leads on to your next moment, which is the day John Lloyd's phone number was thrown into a bin, would I have my career? So I can't Mm. wait for this one, (laughs) as I think it leads to kind of a big moment in your career. So explain to us, who is John Lloyd? Why was this number thrown in the bin? And why was this a sliding doors moment for you? So... I, finishing Rudolf Steiner school when I was in, what, 17, 18, as everyone does, you finish school, uh, no qualifications, and I'm sitting in Australia going, okay, so what should I do? I know I want to do comedy. And my um, my grandmother gets in contact, and she says, I don't want you sitting around doing nothing. Why don't you come and visit me in Kosovo, which is where she lived at the time. Um, yeah. Her husband, my step grandfather was with the UN and so I said okay so she bought me a ticket but it turned out that it was cheaper to buy a ticket to England with that as a pit stop than it was for it to be a direct flight so I thought oh well okay once I'm once I've finished visiting you I could quickly nip over to England for a couple of weeks see my aunties who were living here hang out with them and then go back and so that's what I did and and when I landed here I thought, actually, this is really fun. I might stay here and do that thing of trying to just make it in comedy now. And actually had an egotistical thing of going, well, I'll just apply to Oxford because that's where it's near where (laughs) she lived. And I was like, well, I know I don't have any qualifications, but they might give me an interview and just like me. And so I'll do that. And which going back to the last sliding doors, if I did have qualifications, I possibly would have tried to go to university, which I didn't do, uh, to try and just take a next step in that direction so yeah. immediately there there's a whole different life there whereas the steiner option of having no qualifications after school meant i was i was forced to go and do what i needed to do in my life um i i had nothing to fall back on yeah and so i arrive in england and i'm living here for a few months and my auntie who worked in local bbc radio in oxford Um, She was an assistant producer, I believe, at the time, possibly a producer just for some sort of she would do drive time radio stuff. Um, One day, this guy called John Lloyd walks in and says, I'm thinking of making a radio show here. Uh, Could someone show me around? The boss would usually show this guy around, but the boss was out that day. So my auntie said, well, let me show you instead. She's a really cool person, my auntie. It's impossible not to become best friends with her instantly. And so by the end of the tour, she says to him, by the way, my my nephew's in town and he really wants to do stand-up comedy. Do you have any advice for him? Because John worked in comedy. And he said, uh, and he he later told me, he was like, oh God, not another auntie saying my nephew (laughs) wants to get into comedy but he liked Colleen he I think wanted to do a show at this station so he thought I'll I'll have a phone call with him so gave his number over so Colleen comes home that night and we're sitting at dinner and we're talking about our days and I think I'm working at this point at the works which is a remainders bookshop in Oxford yeah yeah on um on the corn market in in Oxford and she says, oh, I had a fun thing today. I had a uh, a producer guy come in called, uh, what was his name? Can't remember his name, but he was uh, he said he was one of the producers of Black Adder. And I said, 
oh, well, he's probably lying then because there's only one <laughs> producer of Blackadder. It's a guy called John Lloyd. And she went, oh, that's who came in. I went, oh my God. what? John Lloyd was in today? <laughs> and she said, yeah. What? So what's he done? I said, what's he done? He's done Blackadder. He produced Spinning Image. He produced Not the Nine O'Clock News. He, he co-wrote the original episodes of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on radio yeah. with Douglas Adams. He did The Meaning of Lyft. He did, I knew everything that he'd done because I love comedy inside out. And she was like, Oh my god, that's incredible! Um, and then she went, Dan, I I got you his number. He said he's he said we'll give you a call, and I I, I blew up here. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was like, you got John Lloyd's number? He's he wants me to call him. She said yes, and then she said, oh shit! I don't know what she said. <laughs> I accidentally threw it in the bin because she'd written oh it down god. on a bit of paper. She chucked it into the bin, and we lived in Benson, which was and this is like. Eight o'clock at night. There's no way that we're going to drive back to the to the um, to the BBC to get it because it's just like you know it's an hour's journey. Yeah. So I'm sitting there going, Coles, what do you mean you threw it away? And she went, Well, a, I didn't know who this guy was, so it was just on a bit of paper. But b, um, sorry, it just it kind of <laughs> went. So she said, Look, it's possible that the bins won't be emptied tonight. They usually are. But if they're not, the number will be there and I'll find it in the morning. And I had to sit there the entire oh night going, please, if there's a God or if there's anything, don't empty the bins tonight. Please, <laughs> please, 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 please. Because I knew that, that you know, John probably wasn't going to come back. He'd done his tour. He was off. You know, um, Colleen had no connection with him outside of that, my auntie. And you want to strike while the iron's hot while he remembers her. and remembers, Oh, exactly. You know, yeah. A few weeks later, he's going to have forgotten. Exactly. So... I, well, I just had a sleepless night going, because like, I, you know, the sliding doors moment there is I've always thought, you know, I met John Lloyd, but I could have met, and no offense to anyone else I could have met, but I could have met someone like Timmy Mallet, and I could have become a, an assistant to Timmy Mallet and got on yeah. tour with him. And that's another very different life. But this Version, was someone yeah. so at the core of, of everything that I loved, you know, he... He's the person who gave Stephen Fry his first job, Phil Jupiter's his first job, Rowan Atkinson, Richard Curtis. Oh, like this guy is is someone who is literally at the Venn diagram core of everyone's career yeah. from a certain period of British comedy, and so I was utterly obsessed with what he had done. And the morning comes, and Colleen goes to work, and there it is: the bins haven't been emptied, and she gets oh. the number, and. Yeah, so that and and then there's a whole other story of what happens then where I sit on it for days. I know you say strike while the iron's hot, but I just thought I'm I'm 19. It's like when you get a girl's number yeah, and you don't want to call it. It, it was exactly <laughs> that. It was like getting a girl's number and I didn't know, you know, I was practicing like, oh, hi Mr. Lloyd, I'm I'm Daniel Schreiber and I'm and I eventually called him and he had a very bad line. He was in a car and he was like, oh, why don't you call back again tomorrow? And I was like, okay, cool. So I hung up. Then we tried it again and he was busy and he took my number this time to call me back. And then we tried again a third time and it wasn't working again. There was just too much going on, on like static and bad connections. And so he said, look, I'm sorry. It's clearly not working us talking on the phone. And I thought, oh, shit, okay, yeah. And he went, where do you work? And I said, uh, Corn Market in, in, in Oxford. And he went, oh, okay, well, I'm going to be around there tomorrow. Do you want to go for a pint? And that, oh was, that was the game changer. Because <laughs> yeah. if, if a phone call had worked, he would have given me 10 minutes on the phone. We would have had a nice chat. Well, this is what you should do. Apply to the BBC, do all this sort of stuff. And that would have been it. So this, it's weird when you think about how many levels to get where you needed so to get to, many. but I needed to be in a room with him. And that's what happened through these bad phone call reception moments. So I go and meet him in a pub and we're sitting in the pub and we're chatting away. And he's like, oh, wow. Okay. You're really young. Cause I was 18 slash 19 at the time. I think I just turned 19 and, uh, John, sort of said so what do you want to do when you grow up and I said well I grew up in Hong Kong and my dream has always been because I speak Mandarin I've always wanted to be a stand-up in China doing it in Chinese and he went whoa like what 
I he went. I've literally just come from a meeting talking to someone about doing a TV show called The Funniest Man in China or something like that. Oh my god! Where we and we needed someone who speaks Mandarin, who's an English person, to go over and be the host. And he was like, "That's insane that you've just said that because that's that's literally what I'm, I've just come from." So I was like, "Wow, okay, amazing." And he said. God, so what? So what school were you in in, Stein, uh, in Australia? And I said Rudolf Steiner. And then again, he went, Jesus! I've all I've been doing over the last few weeks is reading about Rudolf Steiner because I've been thinking of sending my kids there. So we had this big chat about Rudolf Steiner. And then he says, so where 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 did you go to? And I said in Sydney. And he said, oh, I, I used to go to Sydney a lot with my friend Douglas Adams. Um, where do you live? And I said Palm Beach. And then he went, well, <laughs> he went, that's where Douglas and I wrote The Deeper Meaning of Liff, a book that he and oh Douglas Adams gosh. co-wrote together. And that's the book I had in my bag because it's my favorite book by him. And I pulled it down and went, no. what, this was written in Palm Beach. And 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 so John kind of went, well, okay, we were clearly meant to meet. And that's how I got my job, through three coincidences that were too close together to suggest that there was anything but us meeting, you know? And oh my God, this is incredible. And then just to explain what kind of did John Lloyd then do for you? Like, was he the one that kind of really got you into QI and yeah, basically so, started your whole career? So John, John, after having done all of those things, had a new show that he'd just created, which was called QI. He conceived this whole idea. He found Stephen Fry and they had just finished making the first series. And so he was back in the TV world. He disappeared for a long time making TV adverts and he had a sort of breakdown that was like a decade long. He's very open about talking about that. And so this was his big return and and it was about to launch on TV. I met him, I think, like two weeks before the first episode aired on TV. And so he said, come join QI and be our librarian. And uh, because back then the internet obviously was great, but it was very different. And so mm -hmm. they had a an account at the Blackwell's Bookshop down the road in Oxford. And my job was to go there and buy books that began with the letter B for the next series, because every episode, sorry, every series yeah. of QI is a different letter. So I would go in and buy books on badgers, on Bonaparte, comma Napoleon, on Bon Jovi, on balloons, on anything beginning with B. Amazing. And I'd come back. And then, so what ended up happening was I was in a QI researchers meeting. And what they would do is they would go around the table and they would tell each other what they would pitch a question and then reveal the fact, kind of like you'd see on the show. Yeah. And it would always jump over me when it got to me sitting around the table because I was sort of taking minutes or I'd go and get people coffee and so on. As but they all have to do at some point. Yeah. They, so this is like, you know, a couple of weeks in. And on the second meeting, I thought, well, I, I might just write a question. And so when it got to me on the table, instead of bumping over me, I just read out my question and it wasn't a great question, and it, but it had an interesting fact of an answer. And then it kind of went on and John just came up to me afterwards and said, wow, that's interesting. You just made yourself a researcher on the show. Oh, my God. And then I was just a researcher. That was it. It was. And John and I, you know, we've we've gone on to work a lot together. Um, the first thing that I when I left QI and I moved to London I had an idea with my friend Rich Turner for an idea, sorry, for a radio show, which became the Museum of Curiosity, which mm -hmm. uh, before it became Museum of Curiosity, it was something very different. And John was asked by Rich and me if he would be the host of the show. I think it was Rich's idea. And I always thought John needs to be a host. And we worked on it and turned it into something. And then John said, Rich, Dan, why don't you produce it? And neither of us had any producing experience. I was 22 at the time, I think. You know, this is a Radio 4 production. And and there suddenly we found ourselves going, isn't this interesting? You went into See My Auntie all those years ago. Oh, my God. Wanting to do a radio show. And now you're doing your radio show and I'm the co-creator and producer of it. Just what a what a little weird journey that we've been Dan, on. I don't think I've said, oh my God, or oh my gosh, so many times <laughs> in a Sliding John's moment. Because I think, you know, taking it right back, you know, your grandma for the fact that you had to go via England that yeah. gave you the spark to go there. 
the fact that your auntie's boss wasn't there that day that's like one massive thing because she never would have met him then the bins haven't been collected and then the phone calls it really feels like this moment of fate that as you say the universe was putting you together and I just absolutely love the fact that he was such a like hero of yours like it's not it's not so often that we kind of meet those people in yeah I it's just an incredible moment and do you ever think about what happens like your life would be so different if you hadn't have met him and do do you think about that a lot I do yeah I mean because it's a fun exercise to think about particularly when you have thought about the steps that got you there and I encourage everyone who's listening to this to do that just just work backwards in your Mm. life and think about all the little moments that led to where you are right now and your story will be as nuts as possibly my one just sounded because my one's not that nuts. It just is. It's just as a good story when, when you, you tell put it, it all together. Yeah, though, it is, you, and I think and everyone's would be when you put it all together. Exactly, and like so many people I speak to say, I don't have a sliding doors moment. I'm like, I guarantee you do. You don't. You might not think it's a sliding doors moment, but it's like as you say, that one person that decided not to take the bins out that night. Her, her yeah. actions affected your life. Oh, this is amazing. I love this moment so so much. <laughs> so. Now, hopefully we can still top the moment that we've just been through. But your last (laughs) moment is the day I bumped into historian Matthew Green in Houston. Would I now have my wife and my kids? So we love a good love story on the podcast. We always have to have one of them. So explain what happened that day and how that led you to meet your wife. Yeah. So, okay. so it might be worth starting in the lead up to this meeting with Matthew. But I was... um, uh, just after no such thing as a fish had started and I'd I'd been more on the presenting side of things and I was doing stand-up at this point, um, my agent said, hey, there's a editor at Penguin Books who has come up with an idea for a book mm-hmm. and would like to um, talk to you about maybe being the author of it. And so I said, yeah, great, because I've always wanted to be an author. That's That's been one of the big, big dreams more than anything yeah. else is to write a book. And so I said, that'd be great. So we went for a meeting and it was this editor called Fenella Bates. And she was really cool. And she had an idea that was called Six Things to Believe in Before Breakfast. And that's a line that's taken from one of the Alice in Wonderland books. It's what the Queen Mm -hmm. says. I always try to believe in six impossible things before breakfast. So she thought, wouldn't that be a cool idea for a book? There's six chapters and one is an impossible thing from each chapter. And so you write about the weird theories about it and the weird ideas and all the sort of, you know, uh, batshit thoughts about that. And I... I said, this sounds great. And we we said yes to the deal. And we started doing up the contract. And we were doing, and, it, and she'd told work, uh, pitched in. They said, great. And they all approved of me as author. And so it was all going really, really great. And then I said, I'm not happy with the title. Can I change the title? And they said, no. And I thought, ah. Oh. And I think Fenella thought, well, that will be the end of that let's continue writing this book. No author is going to turn down a chance to write a penguin book (laughs) with Michael Joseph, one of the biggest commercial imprints out there uh, because of a title that clearly works very well. And so I told my agent, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to pull out of the book. I can't do that because I just made a documentary on UFO conspiracy theories for Channel 4. And I was really burnt by the description of what I was going to be in the show, how it was going to be made versus what then I was told was being made. And and it just, I thought... It just had feeling in you. And I was doing Fish, which was so freeing. It was a podcast where no one told you anything. And I Mm. I discovered this new world where you didn't have to answer to people who weren't as qualified for the direct thing that you were doing. And so when Fenella said, we're not changing the title, I thought, well, that's the first crack in what will be more changes and I'll hand in the book and they'll say, no, what we're actually thinking is this. And and I just thought, no, if I'm going to write a book and it's going to have my name on it, it needs to be my book and it needs to have yeah. my title on it because I've dreamt about this since I was a kid. That's and a confident thing to do. It was a nuts thing to do, turning down <laughs> a book. Like I was doing nothing in my career. Like I was doing a podcast, but, you know, podcasting was nothing back then. You know, there wasn't there wasn't any uh, advertising or anything. You couldn't make money off it back oh in the day. God. So I... <laughs> So I, uh, yeah, I I turned it down and I think Fenella was flabbergasted. She couldn't believe it. And we didn't speak for six or seven months 
after that because there's no reason to. You know, she was yeah. an editor, so on. Um, when I was deciding to whether or not to do the book and I hadn't yet met Fenella, I was doing a thing called the Sunday Papers up in Camden, which is this really amazing live event where it happens on a Sunday and they treat it as if it's a live version of the newspapers and they have people giving talks on various different things. So it's sort of like the sports section and then someone will get up and maybe talk about a book that they've written. It's not topical. It's just interesting people. It's like TED Talks all done to a theme of a newspaper. And one of the people giving a speech there was a guy called Matthew Green. And Matthew Green is someone that I knew from when I was living all those years ago in Oxford, in my auntie's place in Benson, uh, because he was the flatmate of a very good friend of mine called Ed, who became a friend through my best friend from childhood in Hong Kong, Emmy, whose mum first suggested <laughs> that I check out Rudolf Steiner schools because I might be suited for it. So oh, wow. those three kind of connect in a in yeah. an interesting way as well. And Matthew... Um, Matthew went on to become a historian, and when I met Fenella, at the same time, she had offered him a book to write a book about time traveling through London's past, and he was currently writing it. So I was like, this is insane. We're going to have the same editor. This is amazing. And um, so, yeah, so uh, Matthew and I sort of reconnected over that, but then I then dropped the book, and seven months goes by. And all the time in the seven months, I was thinking, God, I really wish that... I I really wish I could see Fenella again because Was there an initial attraction? There kind of well no, I yeah, there was, absolutely. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure she had a boyfriend at the time. But also I thought I I really am anti being that kind of sleazy character. Like that was a that she doesn't Fenella would be the type of person that gets guys sort of like being a dick, you know, and yeah. making rude comments. And I've always I don't know why, maybe it's my upbringing from my mum. I've I've really hated that my whole life. No, and, that's good. You, you I know it's a, yeah. To men. I know it's a good thing, but I I so but I, you know, there was a possibility that maybe seven months before, if I'd said something a bit more confidently, like I'd love to take you for a drink. But I thought, no, this is this is your you're an editor. This is work. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go there. And so I kind of I had that as a regret just running through me the whole time. And one night at last minute, I decide to go and see my friend Ash, who's in a band. He was playing in Houston. And I got on a train and I got off and I was running to the to the gig and I was late. And I literally bump into, like physically bump into Matthew Green, who's just walking from somewhere else to go to the train station. I'm like, Matt, how you doing? Hadn't seen him in, you know, over seven months. Yeah, yeah man, I'm good. How you doing? I was like, oh, when's your when's your book coming out? And he's like, it's only it's like two months from now it's coming out. And so I said, wow, OK, um, how's Fenella? And you went, she's really good. And he said, you know, she doesn't have a boyfriend, right? And I said, doesn't she? <laughs> and she and he was like, yeah, you, maybe you should drop her a message. And I was like, no, I think she'll probably hate me because of <laughs> yeah. I've always not messaged. And he said, well, no, I, you know, you, you've been mentioned since because obviously, and she didn't seem that angry with you. So I thought, fuck, maybe I should mention, maybe I should message Vanella because I've always yeah. wanted to. And, and so I found her on Facebook and I dropped her a line saying, I'm so sorry about what happened. And would you would you be up for maybe hearing some new ideas that I have? And maybe I could buy you a Shirley <laughs> whole, Temple. I've got some new yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah. And it turned into like, you know, maybe we could go for a drink on a Friday night and I could tell you my <laughs> yeah. new ideas. And so we did end up going out on the drink. And that led to us going out on a second drink. And then... Eventually, at the book launch of Matthew Green's book, I asked her out properly, and she said yes, and we were officially dating as of the launch of Matthew's book. Oh, my gosh. And then last year, I finally published a book, which is called The Theory of Everything Else, which is essentially the same idea that Fenella created when we first met, The Six Things to Believe in Before Breakfast, Um, except the book has the title that I always dreamed of having, The Theory of Everything Else. And the dedication is to my wife, Fenella, oh, who is now. So- I wish, I wish people could see my face. I think I'm like beaming with smiles because <laughs> all of these things just work so well. And did she, does she have a similar thing on her end? Did she kind of have that thing with you where she always kind of thought about you and was like, oh, Dan? And like, do you think it was? 
a timing thing with you two. Yeah, possibly. I mean, she she says she did. She said she fancied me from the get-go. I was just her type and she's my type, you know. So, like, regardless of the business side of things, you, you kind of go, ooh, hello, who's this? Yeah. I wish I was with you. Um, and, yeah, she she's since said that she she did think that. And it was quite funny because when we did start going out, her boss was very much saying like, wow, Fenella, look at the long game here, trying to get the author back in. <laughs> go, you go, girl. You date him. You date him and secure that deal. Get the book. Get well, the you've book. written the book now. You can, you can leave each other. Yeah. It's done. Well, actually, no, but at the same time, she was sort of saying, he's a comedian. Don't go out with comedians. They're trouble. So there was a lot of negative uh, sort of stuff on me as well. But it's a great moment because I think that it does bring up timing because I think if you did said something, you know, the first time round when you were kind of working on this book together, number one, as you said, you didn't think she was single, but also it just would have been really messy because you then would have kind of said no to the book and it would have been a relationship. But also, do you kind of think if you hadn't have bumped into Matthew, I mean, it sounds like you maybe would have messaged her, but he was really no, this no, kind I wouldn't of trigger. Have. No, no, I wouldn't have. Do you have. not think you would have? No, definitely not. No, that would wow. have been that would have been it. Like there was no thought to that that I needed that moment to happen for me yeah. to and it's the weirdest thought. Like there's you you know, we talk about how what it's like um to maybe go to a different school and would I have, you know, what friends would I have and stuff. That's that's an interesting kind of conversation. What is a completely terrifying conversation is had I not have met Fenella again at that certain point and it worked out I would not have Wilf, Ted and Kit in my life, yes. my three children. Like that's Insane. that their entire existence relies on this bit of the story to happen the way that it happened and everything that followed to happen the way that it happened. Um, all the since the beginning of the universe, everything needed to happen for Wilf, yeah. Ted and Kit to be born. And my story bumping into Matt was an essential, crucial moment closer to their birth than any of the other stuff that went before that just had to happen so that for me is the most important sliding door moment because that's the one that so clearly connects me to the creation of people versus a life decision that takes me i could be in america doing something i'd be back in sydney or melbourne doing something creating life yeah and how many children have i not had (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) who what amazing humans who could have changed the world because I took the flight to England or you know that's those are the parallel world children that we will never get to meet but but I'm glad I wouldn't be I wouldn't want to be in any universe other than this one with those three boys that's the that's the exciting sliding doors moment for me is it really is and I hope you thanked Matthew when you got married yeah did yeah absolutely yeah 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 the guy's absolutely responsible for uh for it Amazing. And I think this is a brilliant moment as well for all these people that are kind of like looking for love, because I think that you just never know. You never know. And like always send a message. If you think that someone you had a spark with someone or whatever, you should always reach out because you absolutely never know where it's going to lead to. Absolutely. And also don't don't give up or give in. Mm-hmm. for something less than what you yes. believe will be the thing. I I never weirdly Fenella's basically my first girlfriend because I had this really weird thing where I just always thought is this going to last as a relationship if I was going on a date with someone? Is this am I are we going to have kids? Are we going to oh, there's so much pressure on my you side. I, yeah. I, I knew I wanted to be a dad, but I didn't want to be a dad till I was like 30 or whatever. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't in my 20s going, we need babies now. Um, <laughs> I just, I for some reason, there was something in me that was just going, nah, this just doesn't feel like this is right. And when I met Fenella, it just felt right. And I don't, I don't properly believe in that kind of thing in terms of the universe, but it was a thunderbolt kind of thing with Fenella. It was particularly, I was at a, um, we were on our third or fourth date and I was at a Paul McCartney gig took her as a surprise to see Paul McCartney. And it was during, I think it was Hey Jude. It must have been the Nananas that we were kind of hugging each other. And I just had this moment where I realized, oh my God, I've met the love of my life. Like I've met, it was a proper like jolted moment in my body where I was like, Uh, and yeah, that's a powerful moment. And I was in my thirties at this point and you do go, you know, am I ever going to find that person? You will just you just got to hang in there and stay clear minded about not 
not settling for less than you deserve. You only get one life. Yeah, That's all we get. We do. So you do, do it right. Oh, Dan, this has been incredible. You've got amazing sliding doors moments. <laughs> I love you. You ended on such an amazing note and I love how you've just described that moment. And I agree. We may not believe in soulmates and everything like that, but we all have a moment where it does just feel like it's all meant to be. And thank you for sharing your moments. Good luck with everything that you're doing. I can't wait to follow and keep listening to We Can Be Weirdos and see the wonderful people that you have on there. And just thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, thanks for having me on. And I definitely will come back if you want to do a Sliding Doors Theory special because yes. I've so much go. to... I'll research it. it. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll have proper notes. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.